Section 15 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 7, Chapter 1, Part 4. There was still another possible form of sentence. The barbarians who overthrew the Roman Empire brought with them an ancestral custom, known as compurgation, or in England as the wager of law, by which a defendant, in either a civil or criminal action, could maintain his title or his innocence by taking an oath and bringing a specified number of men who swore to their belief in its truth. They were known as conjurators or compurgators, and were in no sense witnesses. They pretended to no knowledge of the facts, but only to their confidence in the veracity of their principle. This crude method of establishing the truth was maintained in all the lands occupied by the Teutonic tribes except in Spain, where the Wisigoths early yielded to the influence of the Roman law. It was eagerly adopted by the clergy, who found in it a convenient means of escaping from the harsher expedients of the ordeal or the wager of battle, so that it acquired the name of canonical purgation. In the thirteenth century, the Inquisition found it used in the trial of heretics, and necessarily included it among the resources for doubtful cases, although inquisitorial methods were too thorough to call on its frequent employment. The Spanish Inquisition naturally inherited compurgation among the other traditions of the institution. When conviction could not be had by evidence or torture, and yet the suspicion was too grave to justify acquittal, it could sentence the accused to undergo compurgation. He could not demand it, nor could he decline it, though he might appeal from the sentence, and failure in compurgation was equivalent to conviction, while success was not acquittal, but required abjuration and penance at the discretion of the tribunal, because, although legally shown not to be a heretic, the accused had to be punished for suspicion. The early instructions were silent on the subject, and such cases of the period as I have met indicate that there was no rigidly prescribed method of procedure, although, in the main, they accord in showing it to be a kind of trial by jury, after the tribunal had failed to reach a decision. The general features of the process can be gathered from the case at Saragossa of Beatriz Beltran, wife of the Juan de la Caballeria, accused of complicity in the murder of San Pedro Arbues, who died in prison and was relaxed in effigy in the auto of July 8, 1491. She was put on trial for Judaism in 1489, the evidence against her was by no means decisive, while the defense discredited the witnesses and proved by abundant testimony her devotion to the church, her regular attendance at mass and confession for more than twenty years, her liberality in the celebration of masses, and her long hours spent in daily prayer. She could not be tortured in view of her advanced age and severe infirmities, and on August 9, 1492, the consulta de fe voted unanimously that, as torture was out of the question, she be sentenced to canonical purgation at the judgment of the inquisitors when, if she should purge herself, she should abjure publicly as vehemently suspect of heresy and of Judaizing, 
and should perform penance at the discretion of the tribunal. The next day the inquisitors pronounced that she was not convicted but vehemently suspect, wherefore she should purge herself with twelve conjurators. They were duly selected, and a term of three days was assigned, within which the ceremony should be performed. They assembled in the Aljaferia on August 23rd, when the publication of evidence and the defense were read to them. She was sworn to tell the truth, and was asked whether she had committed these crimes, to which she replied in the negative, and was then removed from the room. The inquisitors again read the accusatory evidence and the defense, the compurgators were sworn to tell the truth, and the inquisitors polled them. The first one, Pedro Monterde, said that he believed Beatriz to have sworn truly, for he had known her for fifteen years, and had always held her to be a good Christian. The rest unanimously concurred, and the purgation was successful. Then, on September 8th, she appeared in an auto as a penitent, and, on the 17th, she abjured all heresies, and especially those of which she was vehemently suspected, after which the inquisitors rendered sentence, declaring her to be vehemently suspect of the crimes which she had abjured, and, as these suspicions and crimes could not be left unpunished, they penanced her with forbidding her to commit these crimes, with the payment of all costs of her trial, the taxation of which they reserved to themselves, and with performing such penance as they might impose on her. The record fails to inform us what was that penance, but it probably transferred to the tribunal a large portion of the property that had escaped her husband's confiscation. The threat that failure would imply condemnation was by no means an idle one. About this time, Fray Juan de Madrid was tried before the tribunal of Toledo. There was much adverse evidence in full detail, and the only defense lay in disabling the witnesses. This was partially successful, but enough remained to justify the inquisitors in saying in the sentence that he could have been condemned on it, but that, in benignity and mercy, he was offered compurgation. He willingly accepted it, and named his compurgators, but half of them refused to sustain his oath of denial, declaring that through their knowledge of him they held him as suspect. This was conclusive. He was considered to be convicted of the charges, and the consulta de fe had no hesitation in voting him to relaxation. In like manner, on February 3, 1503, Jaime Benet was burned at Barcelona because he failed in the compurgation enjoined on him. A change, probably attributable to the growing desire for absolute secrecy, prescribed by the instructions of 1500, altered profoundly the prevailing theory of compurgation, for it prohibited the reading to the compurgators of the evidence and defense. In their presence, the accused was to deny under oath the charges which were recapitulated by the inquisitors, and the compurgators were simply to be asked whether they believed that he swore the truth, and no other questions. There seems to have been some trouble in abrogating the custom of reading the evidence, for the prohibition had to be repeated in 1514. In the project presented to Charles V in 1520 by the conversos, with the object of rendering the inquisitorial process less effective, there was included a modification of compurgation in such wise as to facilitate escape. Of course, no attention was paid to this, 
but that some alteration of the process was required by justice is manifest from one or two minor reforms soon afterwards. In 1523 it was ordered that the fiscal should not be present after the compurgators were sworn, which is suggestive of his influencing them adversely. Still more essential was a regulation of 1529, forbidding those who had testified against the accused from serving as his compurgators. Apparently it was one of the results of suppressing the names of witnesses that the poor wretch, in his ignorance, would sometimes call upon those to save him who had been procuring his destruction, and the inquisitors had not sufficient sense of justice to exclude them, although they had power to refuse admission to any one supposed to be friendly to him. There was also a favorable modification of the ancient practice requiring unanimity on the part of the conjurators, for Simonacas tells us that the inquisitors, when specifying the number to act, could also designate how many defections would be allowed without prejudicing the result. Yet by the middle of the century, when Simonacas wrote, compurgation was becoming obsolete. He denounces it as blind, perilous, and deceitful, and says that it especially should not be forced upon those of Jewish or Moorish descent, for it is equivalent to sending them on the direct road to the stake, since no one could help thinking ill of them, or at least doubting their innocence. Besides, nearly all men are now so corrupt, and Christian charity is so cold, that scarce any one can be found who will purge another, or who will not have an evil suspicion and interpret matters for the worst. To defeat the accused, it suffices for the conjurators to say that they do not know, or that they doubt whether he has told the truth, and who is there who will not feel uncertain when he knows that no one is exposed to purgation unless he is vehemently suspected. This is echoed by the instructions of 1561, which indicate how compurgation was passing out of use by the brief allusion vouchsafed to it. It is to be performed in accordance with the instructions, with such number of compurgators as the consulta de fe may prescribe, but inquisitors must bear in mind that the malice of men at the present time renders it perilous, that it is not much in use, and that it must be employed with the utmost caution. Still, subsequently to this, Pablo Garcia gives full and curious details as to procedure, which show how it had become hedged around with limitations that rendered it a desperate expedient for the accused. The compurgators had to be old Christians, zealous for the faith, who had known the accused for a specified number of years, and were not of kin or well disposed towards him. He was required to name more than the number designated, so as to allow for those who might have died or be absent, showing that he had to act in the solitude of the cell where perhaps he had been confined for years. When the sentence of compurgation was announced to him, he was given a certain term in which to make his selection, and, if he allowed this to elapse, he was at the discretion of the tribunal. No communication with the compurgators was allowed, and when they were assembled, each one was separately and secretly examined to ascertain whether he lacked any of the necessary qualifications, what were his relations with the accused, whether he would give anything to secure his discharge, whether any one had spoken with him and asked him to serve, or whether he had intimated to any of the kindred that he was willing to act. While thus carefully guarding against possible friendship, 
it is significant that there was no instruction to inquire into possible enmity. The ceremony was performed with considerable impressiveness. On the table of the audience chamber there were placed with much solemnity a cross, the gospels, and two lighted candles. The prisoner was brought in, his list of selections was read to him, and he was asked if he recognized them, to which he assented, and said that he presented them as his compurgators. They were then asked if they wished to serve or not. If they accepted, a solemn oath was taken by the prisoner to tell the truth, and not to conceal it for fear of death, or for loss of property, or of honor, or for any other reason. The inquisitors then recited the charges which created vehement suspicion, and asked him, under his oath, whether he was guilty of them, and, after he had answered, he was led back to his cell. Then, if necessary, the nature of compurgation was explained to the compurgators, and they were sworn to answer truly, and not to deny the truth for hate, or love, or fear, or affection, or other motive. They were kept apart, without communication with each other, and each was examined separately and in secret whether he understood what had passed, and whether, in accordance with what he knew of the accused, he believed that he told the truth, and after replying he was made to promise secrecy under pain of excommunication. The answers were carefully taken down, and were signed by the compurgators. Conducted after this fashion, it is easy to understand why compurgation should be characterized as blind and perilous. The accused had to make his selection blindly, and the qualifications required of compurgators almost ensured their unfavorable opinion, at a time when the operations of the Inquisition had caused every man to look upon his neighbor with suspicion, especially when that neighbor was one whom the tribunal required to undergo compurgation. Yet, although the Inquisition thus risked little in subjecting doubtful cases to it, there was ample reason for allowing it to fall into desuetude. Secrecy had become a cardinal principle in all inquisitorial proceedings, and it was violated by calling in a dozen laymen to see the prisoner, to hear the charges against him, and to participate in the judgment to be passed upon him. Besides, it was an acknowledgment that there were cases in which the assumed omniscience and infallibility of the holy office were at fault, and had to be supplemented by the random opinions of a few men selected by the accused. As practiced for centuries in the ecclesiastical courts, it had been an easy method for the guilty to escape merited chastisement. As modified by the Inquisition, it became a pitfall for the innocent. It was wholly at variance with the inquisitorial process as developed in Spain, and, while its place in the canon law prevented its formal abolition, the tribunals had exhaustive discretion as to its employment, and that discretion was used to render it obsolete. Still, it maintained its place as a legal form of procedure. Even as late as 1645, among the interrogatories provided for a visitation, the question was still retained as to whether the forms of the instructions were observed in canonical compurgation, although a writer of the same period tells us that it is not to be employed because, if the accused overcomes sufficient torture, he is to be discharged. In the Roman Inquisition, we find compurgation ordered as late as 1590, in the case of a priest of Piacenza, accused of certain heretical propositions. 
the compurgators were to be five beneficed priests of good character and acquainted with the life of the accused. If the compurgation was successful, he was to be proclaimed of good repute as to the faith, and was to perform salutary penance for the imprudence of his utterances. By the middle of the seventeenth century, however, Carena tells us that it had been virtually disused by the congregation as most perilous, fallacious, and uncertain. From this brief review of the various characteristics of the sentence, it will be seen that the Inquisition had at hand formulas adapted to every possible exigency in the administration of its extensive and highly diversified jurisdiction. Until the development of the authority of the Suprema over the local tribunals, the use made of these formulas depended on the temperament of the individual inquisitors, shielded as they were from responsibility by secrecy and by the virtual suppression of the right of appeal, except in trivial matters. It must be borne in mind, moreover, that, even when their sentences may seem merciful, there was always behind them the most grievous infliction of an infamy which affected the honor and the fortunes of a whole lineage. End of section 15